due to the difficult nature of this episode, I encourage you to listen with an open mind all the way to the end and compare my words with Scripture to best determine how God would have you proceed with your children. Welcome to Truth, Love, Parents, where we use God's Word to become intentional, premeditated parents. Here's your host, A.M. Brewster. I'm glad you made it to the end of this 10-part series with me. If you're just joining us, if this is your first visit to TLP, and if you're curious how you can better parent angry children, I'd like to personally invite you to go back to episode 287, Why Our Kids Get Mad. Start there and work your way through the series. It should be a significant blessing to hear from a biblical perspective the hows and whys and whats for anger. But if you've been with us through the whole series, will you please consider leaving a review in iTunes or on Facebook for us? Tell us how the series impacted you. Tell us what you liked about the show. Your ratings and reviews are not only super encouraging to us, but they're a big part of how we connect with searching families. We create these free parenting resources because we love God and we love His people. The more of those people who can hear this material, the better. However, you can also take your encouragement to the next level. We received a beautiful email from a new listener named Lainey. She was such a blessing to us. She not only lifted our spirits with her words, she also sponsored today's episode. By that one simple action, she became an important part of making this episode possible. When we work together, we can multiply our efforts and reach more people. I love how Paul encouraged the Colossians to pass the letter he wrote for them onto the Laodiceans. Well, I'm asking you to pass Truth Love Parent on to other Christian parents in your life. And make sure you click on the five ways to support TLP link in the description of this episode to learn more ways that you can help spread the word. All right, let's dive into today's controversial subject. I say controversial because there will likely be a ton of people who don't like what I have to say, and it's possible those people will all dislike it for various reasons. I may end up annoying people on both sides of the issue. Now, I know that's a terrible way to introduce a subject if you're trying to onboard people, but I want to be honest up front, and if you choose to listen to the episode, I want you to know my heart. We're talking about how to parent an angry child with disabilities. And we're talking about this because so many of you reached out to me with nearly identical questions. I'll make up some examples that have the same tone as your emails and Facebook messages. My child is autistic. How does God want me to handle his anger? Or, my child has been diagnosed with a mental disorder. Isn't their anger different because they can't help it? Or, would it be okay to ignore my child's anger because of their disorder? And those are all super fair questions. I've often said that God's Word gives us everything that we need for life and godliness, and I believe that with all of my heart. That means that this question has to be able to be answered from the Bible as well. That doesn't necessarily mean we'll all come to the exact same conclusions and apply those conclusions in the exact same way, but it does mean that the Lord addresses it, and it's our responsibility not to find our viewpoint in proof texts of Scripture, but to discover the Lord's mind on the subject as close as we possibly can. This is not about our truth, your truth, my truth. This is about God's truth. Therefore, I want to carefully and humbly present some biblical and logical realities and provide some direction and, most importantly, some hope for those of you who have angry children with disabilities. For this reason, I'm going to stick very closely to my notes to prevent rambling and unhelpful rabbit trails. Number one, we live in a broken world. In Genesis 3, 17-19, we hear God proclaim the consequences for the first sin. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles I shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I don't need to convince you that we live in a broken world. Your children entered this world in pain, and pain has rudely forced itself into their lives over and over ever since. Number two, the brokenness of the world produces pressure. Here's a good example, John 5, 2 through 7. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. This man not only had the pressure of his physical malady, he also had the pressure that there was no one to help him get into the pool. Your kids carry a weighty burden every day of their lives. There are physical issues, relational struggles, school, friends, enemies, spiritual immaturity, money problems, and countless more burdens on their hearts. And each of our kids carries these weights around all day. Secular researchers have noted that a huge number of school children are exhibiting the same symptoms of PTSD as soldiers returning from war. That's a lot of stress. But humans don't like stress they don't like. What I mean by that is that there are certain stressors, like riding a roller coaster, for example, that some people like while others don't. To say that humans don't like stress would kind of be inaccurate, but we all hate the stress and pressure that we hate, which is the stress that we deem uncomfortable. Even roller coasters can be considered comfortable when you absolutely love them. So, if I can simplify things for a moment, if I can place everything in my life into the comfortable or the uncomfortable buckets, it would be my desire to have far more comfort than discomfort. In fact, it would be preferable to remove all discomfort from my life. I interpret discomfort as being bad, therefore there is absolutely no place for it in my life. Your children are the same in that they want to escape the uncomfortable pressures of life. That's where our third point comes in. Number three, pressure produces temptation. Abraham was tempted to not sacrifice Isaac. Joseph was tempted to sleep with Potiphar's wife. Even Jesus was tempted. We know Satan tempted Christ for 40 days in the wilderness, and we know that he tempted Jesus in the ways that were producing the most pressure. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Turn this rock into bread. Jump off this cliff and prove to the world who you really are. Just do this one little thing and take your rightful possession of the world but also consider the pressure and temptation of the cross. Matthew 26, 36-42 reads, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Pressure produces temptation to try to remove the pressure in a way that would not please the Lord. 
Now, I do just want to say in regard to Jesus Christ, he was not tempted from within as we are. He did not have the sin nature. So I don't want us to think that Jesus was tempted to sin and he wanted to do it in a way that didn't please God. That's not the case. But for us, pressure does produce temptation to try to remove the pressure in a way that would not please the Lord. Sometimes God does want the pressure removed, but only in a certain way. He did want Joseph to escape the pressure of the temptation to adultery, but he wanted Joseph to escape that pressure by running, not by giving in. God wanted the same thing for David in his temptation with Bathsheba. However, David removed the temptation to adultery by committing adultery, thereby getting out from under the temptation and just jumping into the sin. And we also have to acknowledge that sometimes God doesn't want us to escape the pressure at all. James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sometimes God desires that we escape the temptation to sin without necessarily being removed from the pressure that instigated the temptation. But, number four, the immature give in to temptation easier than the mature. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Since God always provides a way to escape temptation without sinning, when we give in to that temptation, it's never out of necessity. It is out of immaturity and weakness. The mature individual has practiced righteousness and a habit that has given him strength in overcoming temptation. Of course, number five, the mature are by no means completely insulated from temptation nor guaranteed to overcome it in their own strength. David is a perfect example of a mature, godly man, someone whom God calls a man after his own heart, and yet a moment of weakness produces adultery, murder, and a loss of an innocent child. This is why, number six, overcoming pressure is both a physical and spiritual undertaking. There's a physical dimension that involves things like taking medicine to overcome an illness. Both of my children were sick recently. You better believe my wife and I did our best to relieve that pressure for them. If finances are tight, you'd be wise to get another job or decrease spending to remove that pressure. However, we must not neglect the spiritual realities. Money may be so tight that I'm having a hard time paying the bills and putting food on the table, and there may be little to nothing that I can do at any given moment to change that reality or to escape that pressure, but that doesn't mean that I'm allowed to curse God, complain, steal, or sin against Him by denying His truth. Successfully overcoming the pressure in my life might have a physical dynamic, but it will always have a spiritual dynamic because we are physical and spiritual beings living in a physical and spiritual reality. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say, my friends. A person who claims that man's problems are only ever biological or physiological, that person is denying the truths of Scripture. They're living in a delusion. It's not even accurate to say that there's a spiritual component to every facet of life. That's inaccurate because our spirituality is not a component of our lives. It is our lives. Point six said, overcoming pressure is both a physical and spiritual undertaking. It may actually be more accurate to say overcoming pressure is always a spiritual undertaking and sometimes a physical undertaking. Because number seven, God never promises to remove physical or spiritual pressure. In episode 285, we discussed the experience of a righteous parent and we talked about the nature of blessings. Let me recap that for a moment. God never promises material blessing 
or we could say comfort, to believers in this life. Material prosperity may come, it may not, and it's never an indicator of spirituality. The extremely poor can be far more Christ-honoring than the extremely rich. The same goes for sickness and health. This means that it's not God's will that we be able to overcome all physical pressures. This is not to say that we shouldn't live wisely in such a way that we don't unnecessarily complicate our lives by inviting pain and suffering, but it does mean that we can know that physical pressure will be a reality even when we're glorifying God the best we can. Jesus commands us to cast our cares on Him, but there is a weight He commands us to bear. We're told to take up our own cross. God wants us to carry the weight of denial of self, but He doesn't expect us to be crushed under the burdens only He can bear. So, when pain and suffering and pressure comes because we are living in a way that pleases the Lord, we are to embrace it, not hide from it. We are to look for His sustaining grace through it. Matthew 5, 10-11, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John 16, 31-33, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world." Tribulation is a promise for the followers of God. That means that though we may not be able to do a single ever-loving thing to escape the physical pressure of our lives, we can know for certain that there is always a way to escape the temptation to sin, but not necessarily the presence of spiritual pressure. Jesus didn't even escape that. But we must again come to grips with the fact that though we can always overcome spiritual pressure, eight, God never promises that we will overcome all physical pressure in this life. This is a different dimension of the last point. God promises us that physical and spiritual pressure will come. He also promises that we will be able to overcome the spiritual pressure, but He doesn't promise we'll be able to overcome all physical pressures. Just consider the crucifixion. Jesus was perfectly holy throughout the entire experience, but there was no escaping the burden of the cross. So allow me to recap a point I've already made. Number nine. The only promise we have for overcoming pressure is that God will always provide a way to experience victory over the spiritual pressure. As we saw earlier, temptation is an expected part of life, but so is the provision of God's escape. 10. Therefore, as we seek to respond correctly to the pressure in our lives, we must understand the nature of the pressure, God's will concerning the pressure, and God's expectation for us in the pressure. If I believe that all discomfort is bad, I will not respond correctly to pressure. If I believe that God should work differently through this discomfort than he is, I will not please him in my response. And that's called sin. The pressure and discomfort isn't the sin. Even the temptation to call God a liar isn't a sin. But if you actually lose faith in him, well, that's the sin. So what is the nature of the pressure in your child's life? Let's talk about that, the nature of pressure. Your child is experiencing more physical and spiritual pressures than even you may know. Let me give you two great examples you may have never considered. A. Anytime we experience precipitation, we know the barometric pressure has increased. Literally, the air has gotten heavier. 
Now, it's not as crushing as water may be, but that's a good example of how weight increases the more of it you have above your head. And the weight is significant enough to be felt, especially by younger, more immature people. Did you know that many preschool and kindergartens will schedule more assistance on days it snows? These professionals recognize that a heavier barometric pressure can have an unseen effect on little people. The same is true for the moon. Letter B, as we approach a full moon, many emergency rooms will schedule more workers because the incidence of violent crimes and accidents rise the closer you get to the full moon. On one hand, this sounds as silly as suggesting that full moons create werewolves and insanity, but consider the fact that the gravitational pull of the moon possesses the ability to drag the entire ocean waters out of their depths. And you honestly think it has zero effect on humans? Just because it's not necessarily measurable doesn't mean it's not happening. And those are just two examples of some of the unseen stressors your children are bearing. Add those to the known stressors in your kid's life, and you have quite the physical and spiritual burden. Okay, Aaron, I'm hearing you, but you've taken a lot of time and you haven't really touched on disabilities. Well, here's the thing. Some burdens are physical, and some are spiritual, and often it's not as easy as we'd like to determine which is which. Many physical issues are easy to identify. We have MRIs and CAT scans, blood tests and urine analysis, cheek swabs and autonomic tests to identify the breakdown or mutation of biological tissues. On the other hand, there's a whole category of issues that do not have a comparable physical exam that can identify it. Consider with me a secular psychiatrist. Now, please keep in mind that psychology means the study of the soul, and secular means not religious or spiritual. A secular psychologist or psychiatrist doesn't believe in the soul. He believes that humans evolved by an entirely material process. He doesn't believe in the spirit, and he doesn't believe in God or the afterlife. Therefore, all human problems are physical problems to him. All problems are biological. They're all physiological. Unfortunately, there are two issues for the psychiatrist. Number one, the spirit does exist and is one of the main causes of discomfort, pressure, and struggle in all of our lives. And two, the secular psychologist doesn't have any access to any technology that can test the spirit. There's no blood test or urine analysis that will show my child has a problem with selfishness that results in compulsive lying. There's no brain scan that will reveal my child's discontentment. There's no physical exam that will prove one way or the other that my child has genuine faith in God and his word. Therefore, when it comes time for a secular psychologist to critique someone's behavior, once again, let me clarify, behaviors are things people do, many of which have no biological explanation for them. The secular psychologist will observe the individual's behavior and then consult the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. From there, his worldview demands that as long as culture deems the behaviors appropriate, there must be some form of biological breakdown that's occurring. Also, keep in mind that the moment the culture no longer sees that abnormal behavior as being abnormal, it's removed from the DSM. For example, homosexuality and transgenderism were for a very long time viewed as mental disorders. The psychiatric profession has since removed that from the list. It's now considered normal. Anyway, if the doctor views the behavior as being abnormal... His worldview demands that there must be some form of biological breakdown that's occurring. And even though no physical test would ever reveal the breakdown, because it's likely not there physically, the doctor must conclude that there's this nebulous category to which he'll refer as a, quote, mental disorder. Now, please be careful. It's right here that I'm about to lose some of you. 
Please listen carefully to what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate biological problems that can cause symptoms that appear to be spiritual. Here's a perfect example. My wife and kids were out of the house. I was watching TV. Out of nowhere, and for the first and only time in my life, I experienced a full-on panic attack. My heart was racing. I felt dizzy with an unshakable sense of terror. I had trouble breathing, and I felt like I was totally losing control. I tried to take stock of my situation. I wasn't watching anything scary on TV. I was at home in no physical, financial, relational, or otherwise danger. I called my wife to make sure they were okay. All was well. I searched through my mind to determine if this were the result of having forgotten something really important and my body was trying to warn me, like a super exaggerated version of that feeling you get when you just know you've forgotten something right before you leave the house. I prayed and investigated my heart to see if I were harboring any unrepentant sin, yet there was nothing. So I did what any intelligent adult man would do. I called my mom. (laughs) She listened to me explain what was going on. She then asked me a number of questions and requested that I spit into a cup of water. I gave her the result of the spit test, and she confidently asserted that I had an overabundance of candida in my system. Candida is a natural bacteria we all have, but like strep, if the bacteria is allowed to multiply too much, it can cause physical problems. I later found out that not only did I have a raging candida blossom, I was prone to it because I had type O blood. My mom explained to me that one of the symptoms of candida is strong feelings of anxiety. But was I in sin? Isn't anxiety a sin? I mean, the Bible says to be anxious for nothing. I was being anxious. Well, here's the thing. The Bible makes it perfectly clear that sinful anxiety is the result of not believing God. When we don't rejoice in Him, when we don't obey Him, when we don't respond correctly to the situations He brings into our lives, and when we don't think correctly, we're going to be anxious. And that anxiety is being caused by the sin of my not trusting and obeying God. But the feelings of anxiety are not a spiritual thing. They're chemicals that course through our bodies. Candida can cause the same chemicals to overflow that not trusting God causes. Just remember that we are 100% biological and 100% spiritual. Our spirits exist with our bodies in an inexplicable symbiosis. But our emotions are a unique bridge between the two. We can feel something because of biological factors, and we can feel something because of spiritual factors, and we can feel something due to a complex mix of the two. So I'm not saying that feelings of depression and anxiety are always a sin, But I'm also not saying that feelings of depression and anxiety are always not a sin. I'm not saying that they're okay because we feel them that they're fine all the time and have absolutely no bad roots. Your child may have been diagnosed with acute anxiety disorder. Okay, well, why? What tests revealed this? What's the cause of the anxiety? Is he feeling anxious because he has a massive candida bloom in his system? Or is he feeling anxious because he doesn't trust God? That if it's God's will for your child to be accepted into that college, he will be. And if it's not God's will, that's okay too. Two feelings of anxiety. One's the result of sin. The other is not. If you are prone to saying that all restlessness and feelings of depression or anxiety are always sinful, you are incorrect. And if you believe that all restlessness and feelings of depression or anxiety are always the symptoms of a quote-unquote mental disorder that is not a sin and for which no one should be held responsible, you are also incorrect. So, what do we do? Let's discuss number 12, the identification of pressure. 
Here's a simple principle. A. Never call something a sin that God does not call a sin, and never say that something is not a sin if God calls it a sin. The Bible needs to be your groundwork. B. Use every biological means possible to test your children's health. A simple Lachman test will reveal to you that I don't have an ACL in my right knee. A spit test showed my candida outbreak. Muscle tests, fluid tests, x-rays, bioimpedance, technological imaging, and even communication tests are all appropriate ways to determine a person's health. And you know what's always going to show up on these physical tests? Much of the autism spectrum. But we also have to acknowledge that due to psychiatrists' inability to measure and understand the spirit, there's still a large segment of the spectrum that is not identifiable by biological test, and that oftentimes is merely a psychologist's best attempt to understand a spiritual problem through a materialistic worldview. I've worked with children who had legitimate physiological issues that cause a degradation or mutation of tissues that had a profound effect on the child's ability to learn, grow, comprehend, speak, and interact. However, I've also worked with far more children who were put onto the spectrum by their doctors, but whose real issue was not a supposed mental disorder, but in fact, a spiritual problem. I've seen anxiety, depression, phobias, anger, defiance, attention issues, tics, quirky social behavior, sexual aberrations, and so many more absolutely melt away when the child submitted to God. So I'm definitely encouraging you to seek testing and to even put a legitimate amount of trust in testing that is biological, not behavioral. Now, before we continue, one more observation. Obviously, our sciences cannot detect everything. I want to leave the door open for a legitimate biological problem for which we do not yet have a test. That's totally a thing. But it's not a problem when it comes to parenting our kids. C. Make your child's physical health a priority. Even in cases when the child is just plain old sinning, it's not going to hurt to make sure they're as physically healthy as they can be. You know how hard it is to have a good attitude when you're sick. You know how snippy and whiny and needy and irrational you can be. Remember, physical pressures add spiritual pressures. Even though the physical pressure is not an excuse for sin, we have to acknowledge that the additional weight makes it harder for immature people to do right. It's never impossible, because God will always provide a way to escape, but it is challenging. And let's be honest, immature people often don't even want to try to obey. But letter D, make your child's spiritual health the priority. This will be our last point for today. I greatly respect and I appreciate your patience. This is a huge topic, and I didn't want anyone to have to wait a couple days to get around to the second half. To a far greater degree than you value your children's physical health, to be a Christ-honoring parent, you absolutely must make their spiritual health your top priority. This means that we must be vigilant to know the scriptures and to test our children's behavior by those scriptures and instruct, reprove, counsel, and train accordingly. Let's look at an example. Let's say that your elementary schooler's teachers were complaining about his inattention and antsy nature. So you took him to the doctor who did some observation and diagnosed your child with the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Is it possible your child has a physiological issue that makes it hard for him to sit still and pay attention? Well, totally. We discovered that my daughter's classic ADHD markers were a result of two things. Number one, the effect that red 40 food coloring has on her system, and two, the fact that she has a retained primitive reflex called the spinal gallant reflex. 
In infants, this reflex helps with the birthing process, but if older children don't grow out of it, it can affect their posture, cause bedwetting problems, and make it very difficult for a child to sit still. But is it also possible that your child simply hates school and doesn't want to listen to his teacher draw on and on about dead people from history or useless math? Is it possible your child has a bad attitude about school? I have a hard time sitting still when I super don't like what's going on. I remember a missionary visiting our church, and I won't go into all the details, but he said and did some things that made me feel so uncomfortable that I just wanted to leave the auditorium. However, I stayed there, but I'm sure I looked like a preschooler being asked to sit nice for a picture. I didn't want to be there. So what's a parent to do? You may not know if your child's struggle is actually physiological or spiritual, but do you remember what I said earlier? Never call something a sin that God does not call a sin, and never say that something is not a sin if God says it is a sin. Your child may struggle paying attention. That's not a sin. But that doesn't excuse disobedience, which is. I may have experienced an anxiety attack, but that wouldn't mean that anger toward my wife or a denial of biblical truth is somehow justified in that moment. Your child may have legitimate learning disabilities caused by fetal alcohol syndrome, but that doesn't mean that it's okay for that child to be discontent, complain, or refuse to do their best to the glory of God. Your daughter may be on the autism spectrum, but that does not mean that bad attitudes and unkind speech are acceptable. Aaron, my autism spectrum 14-year-old functions on the level of a 4-year-old. Okay, then a wise Christ-honoring parent would hold that child to the high biblical expectations appropriate for a 4-year-old. We don't ignore or excuse sin because our child isn't feeling well. We shouldn't ignore or excuse sin because our child is bearing a weighty physical pressure. Now, I know it seems kind and loving to cut a child some slack if they're battling with cancer treatments. I totally agree and believe that we need to cut everyone far more slack than we normally do. I get it. It's a child who's undergoing treatment that's a burden for adults. There are going to be very real spiritual temptations that we will need to help our kids navigate. And yes, we'll need to do so in patience and love. But it doesn't mean that our child's tantrum where he's screaming at the nurses and throwing bedpans is okay. We understand the pressure, and we teach and reprove and counsel and train him to overcome the spiritual temptation to the glory of God. Just like we would do when our kids come home from a bad day at school, or after a breakup, or in the midst of losing a friend to suicide, or over the hurdle of an upset tummy. We live in a broken world, and the brokenness of the world produces pressure, and that pressure produces temptation. The immature give in to temptation easier than the mature. Of course, the mature are by no means completely insulated from temptation, nor guaranteed to overcome it in their own strength. This is why overcoming pressure is both a physical and spiritual undertaking, because God never promises to remove physical or spiritual pressure, and God also never promises that we will overcome all physical pressure in this life. But He does promise that He will always provide a way to experience victory over spiritual pressure. Therefore, as we seek to respond correctly to the pressure in our lives, we must understand the nature of the pressure, God's will concerning the pressure, and God's expectations for us in the pressure. Pressure will always either be physical, spiritual, or a hybrid. Therefore, we must correctly identify it before we can help our kids work through it. So we need to never call something a sin that God does not call a sin, and never say that something is not a sin if God says it's a sin. We need to use every biological means necessary to test our children's health. We also need to make our child's physical health a priority. 
But even more importantly, we need to make our child's spiritual health a priority. This means that regardless of their diagnosis, illness, disorder, bacteria, or retained reflex, we never ignore or excuse what God calls sin. Not ignoring or excusing it doesn't mean we have to be jerks who have no compassion. But if we don't deal with the issue by teaching, reproving, counseling, and training according to God's word, we're not being the ambassador parents God called and created us to be. We're giving our children a false impression about life. We're lying to them. And I would never want that for you. I love you. I love your families. And most of all, I love God. I pray this study has pleased him and helped you. Please don't hesitate to contact us if you need some more guidance and assistance or explanation. And join us next time as I introduce you to one of my all-time favorite Christian family attractions. I'll see you then. Truth, Love, Parents is part of the Evermind Ministries family and is dedicated to helping you become an intentional, premeditated parent. Join us next time as we search God's Word for the truth your family needs today.